and one of the things that I quite often say is that if you're thinking about global health, if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, oh, I mean, I'm interested in global health, that's the first step. That's the spark. Like, you know, that you've had the spark at some point. Welcome to this episode of the Geeky Medics podcast. Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of different backgrounds. If you're anything like me, knowing what you want to specialise in can be really tough. And with our guests, we drill down into why they chose the specialty they're in and what it's really like to do the job. If you're interested in global health or paediatrics, this is your episode. We're joined by Dr. Michael Malley, a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine. I hope you enjoy. and child health in um, in sort of global health contexts and also with MSF and a number of projects as well. And thank you for joining us on the podcast and, and it's really nice um, to get you in person as well which is always you know it's much nicer than Zoom um, to sort of see you face to face so thank you thank you for coming and joining us on, on the podcast. Um, I was sort of doing some background reading on you um, and, and sort of your career and it's you know you've got an interesting one as, as everyone on the podcast does and you know, you've not just gone straight through training with paediatrics and you've done bits on the side. So I think we'll just sort of, we'll start at the beginning, if that's okay, and sort of talk about um, where you went to medical school and sort of what, what brought you interest in, in paediatrics. Yeah, sure. So I went to, um, I, I'm worried that you found stuff about me online, by the way. That's, that's always a worrying start to a, to a oh, conversation. That's my favourite bit. Yeah, we're going to have to review some of that later, I think. But um, um, but yeah, no, hopefully nothing dodgy. Um, so yeah, so I went to medical school, um, so Cambridge undergrad, um, did my um, did my intercalated in history, actually, and um, and uh, secret intelligence, uh, government intelligence, which was which was fun. So it was almost a different career. Wow. Um, but, um, and then went um, did my clinical school in UCL, so in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think first got the kind of paediatric bug, um, sort of doing paediatrics as, as an undergrad, so in fourth year, I was at, um, I was at Luton, I think, and, uh, and then uh, the Whittington Hospital. I just like really, just really enjoyed the, the different atmosphere in peds. Like it is, just, it is just really friendly and it is just like, it's, it's a lot more relaxed than adult medicine. It feels like there's a lot less pressure and it just feels like, you know, we're all there to, to make the best environment for children. And that's just a really nice way to practice medicine, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of coupled that with thinking, well, actually, all of the investigations we do, we, we try to do for a reason. We try to do it logically. So that, that was quite that was quite nice. And that felt like a thinking sort of specialty mm-hmm. with the fun as well. Um, and then I did a I did a, um, a mental health placement um, in Muswell um, Hill, actually, in an inpatient place there. And... The, the attention to detail of children's development there was phenomenal. It was so basically we'd have a meeting every three hours and we talk about what each child in the unit had done in the previous three hours. And that was sometimes that they played like you know Guitar Hero for, for a while, and sometimes that they'd you know had a really difficult time and they'd been sitting by themselves against a wall. Mm-hmm. But then you'd plan the next three hours of their lives and how you'd interact with them those three hours. Wow. And I thought, God, like you, know, we really care about children mm-hmm. and we can really make a difference to how 
they see medicine like you know so, so that kind of really inspired me mm-hmm. um, and then was very lucky to get a, a job in f1 in, in in pediatrics as well and that kind of could just confirm that the day-to-day stuff i really enjoyed as well mm-hmm. so you mentioned sort of you know obviously making a good environment for children what what is it you know if you sort of do a headline of why pediatrics is so good what would it be I mean, I think, you know, it, it is the children and the families like the, the, that make it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the fact that you can be silly every day a little bit and you can let your own personality kind of through. I think sometimes you, you have to stand behind a facade in, in adult medicine. Yeah. Sometimes you have to be very professional, understandably. Yeah. You have to deal with a lot of difficult things. Whereas in paediatrics, you can let a lot of that fun out and you can you know you can mm-hmm. focus on making it a really welcoming uh, and comfortable environment for children and their families mm-hmm. and then you know a lot of people say that actually the difficult part is having the parents in the in the in the conversation i actually think it's completely the opposite way i think being able to communicate with the whole family and like mm-hmm. really make it you know make a different make a difference sounds very cliche but yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. hopefully or, or attempt to do so yeah. and with an entire family i think that's a really special thing which you know, is a really only happens in pediatrics. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really, I, I really love it for that reason. And we were actually just chatting uh, before we started recording, but yeah, the, the children are just so forgiving as well. So you can be doing a painful procedure on a child, um, and they'll be kicking you in the face and sort of trying to elbow you and punch you in the eye and whatever. And um, and then three, you know, thirty seconds later, you offer them a sticker, and they're like, "Oh, I love you. Thank you very much." And you know, they're just you always get a lot of joy out of working with children. So I think it's really yeah, yeah. And we can't just, I think we can't skip over what you just said about, what was it, did you say you intercalated in history and... Yeah, government secret intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> we can't skip over that. <laughs> How did you end up there? Um, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Yeah, um, well, that's uh, a classic uh, one. <laughs> um, no, I just, I was always sort of split between the humanities and, and science. And actually, mm. I think... I don't know if this is a call out for anyone who's who's actually doesn't feel that they're grossly scientific and you know I, I enjoy the science I enjoy logical rational thinking and mm. um, but that's not the you know the sole preserve of of, of, this, of the of medicine and the science specialties like there's so much humanity involved in it as well mm-hmm. um, and so that kind of analytical thinking and that kind of thinking why things happen and how how we can change things in the future is basically history in a nutshell um, and so I really enjoyed sort of that analytical writing and stuff and then mm-hmm. went to some really interesting um, they were called intelligent seminars which just sounded like pretty cool I thought. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> they were they were back in a um they were in a upper wooden staircase in in the middle of cambridge and they'd happen in one of the oldest buildings in in, in the town and it would always happen in the dark at like 8 30 at night and you'd climb this wooden staircase and there'd be a central table with like all these people from the intelligence community so like former head of mi6 like former head of like you know the, the canadian intelligence services former double agent you know for gordievsky came once who's um you know was a double agent working for the well, I hope for the for the UK, um, and um, during the Cold War, um, and you know there'd be these little little like chairs for the students, and you'd be sitting on the side, mm. um, but you get to ask a few questions of these immense figures within yeah. geopolitics. I guess yeah, that was really was really interesting. That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, so we're going to move on slightly um, and sort of ask generally about how you got into working with MSF um, and sort of why you wanted to do that, why you wanted to make that a part of your sort of career. Yeah, and I think, so the honest, the, the, the completely honest answer, if I, if I, if I track this back, um, which you may or may not want to cut out, is that, um, is that I used to watch ER a lot in the old days. Uh, I don't know if you've come across ER. It was, it was a, for anyone who doesn't know, it was kind of a mid-90s American TV programme and it was the best kind of medical drama at the time. Um, and it was only recently that people stopped knowing about it. And I, I said this, uh, I said this to some medical students a little while ago. And I said, "Has anyone heard of ER?" And one person put their hand up, like really excitedly. I was like, "Yes, finally, someone." 
someone's heard of it? And they were like, yeah, my mum used to watch it. Um, oh, <laughs> which was kind sad. of suboptimal. <laughs> um, but no, it was the, it was a really, really good... And George, it's where George Clooney started, mm. and he was a paediatrician in ER. Um, so that got me really, really oh, into Oh, wow. So now you're preparing yourself to George Clooney? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> but, um, but uh, I mean, he quit, so at least I've got more okay. staying power than he yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, but no, they, they, they sort of really showed... They really ins- like that program inspired me to think that you can really make a holistic kind of difference by working in an ER mm-hmm. setting, mm-hmm. and then I think it just took it one step further. That, that program actually went abroad, and I think they filmed some scenes in DRC or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it just it just seemed like a really natural next step to me to be like, well, actually, if you're if you're interested in sort of trying to do a job and relieve suffering or or, or make things a little bit better where you are, mm-hmm. then actually the health needs elsewhere far outstrip often your location so, mm. so why isn't it a normal next step to think well if I want to do this surely I want to do it you know where, where the health needs are greater um, and so I think that was that was what first got me started thinking about it as kind of 15 16 yeah. had a quiescent period during university where I thought I just need to get through this yeah, um, uh, yeah. Um, and then sort of towards the end sort of of medical school so I th- started thinking actually yeah that is something that I'd be really really interested in and mm. tried to show a bit more interest there uh, did, did, edited a current affairs bit for um for a global health magazine at UCL mm. but I then did my elective in Tanzania which was the first real experience I had mm. um but it was quite you know it was, you, you get a spark somewhere and I'm yeah. a little bit embarrassed to to say that that was George Clooney in ER it's the honest answer but yeah <laughs> it's, if I'm being completely honest then but, but people obviously will get sparks in very different ways so where sort of um you know we've talked briefly about you said you were elective in Tanzania and that was that sort of perhaps one of your sparks other than ER uh, and George Clooney but um you know how, how did you get involved uh, with MSF and you know sort of where where have you been with with them yeah so I think um I think when you think of kind of humanitarian work a lot of the time you think of you think like MSF is one of the big names that springs mm-hmm. to mind and obviously you know other NGOs are available mm-hmm. um, but um but MSF really kind of you know has a a lot of publicity for very good reasons mm. um, it's obviously one of the biggest it has a budget of over a billion pounds a year um, oh. and it, it has the capability to get to places that other NGOs could, just can't get to in a safe or effective manner mm-hmm. and so I, I think that was something which I became aware of and thought this is a really this is something that I really want to be a part of mm. um, and then small MSF you know kind of adverse I guess but but they are they take the, their values very very seriously and so something like 95% of all of their funding comes from individuals um, so it doesn't come from big corporations or, or governments or the EU yeah. or wherever mm-hmm. so politically they are fiercely independent and and that just feels like that just feels like the right way to go about it to, to me like you know if you are beholden to a political agenda when you're trying to deliver care to the people who need it most mm-hmm. then it kind of feels like you've lost something in the translation there sure so it really felt like MSF were very, very strong on their independence, on their neutrality, um, and then also in their publicity of what was going on in the world. Mm. And then in a really selfish way, I kind of thought, I really want to get involved in global health. I really want to see if I can be of any use here. But it's an ocean, right? It's, mm. you know, and I am the tiniest atomized drop in that, yeah. in that ocean. So me just trying to go out there by myself is feels ineffectual and yeah, so I kind yeah. of thought in a selfish way look you've had 50 years of experience with a budget of whatever and the mm-hmm. research capacity to back it up and um, why don't you just why don't you tell me where to go like you tell me where you want me and and I'll try to be useful uh, yeah. as I can within that setting yeah and, and I think that's kind of worked out for me and that's why I got into MSF and I've been lucky to do um, I've been to five projects with MSF now um, over four missions so started in Iraq in, 19, in 2000 and 
18 um, was in um, sort of the northwest around the Syrian border there and then moved to Mosul for a couple of months um, and then was in North Sudan um, and then over to Niger um, and then just came back from a mission in South Sudan a few months ago. Wow so lots of different places and you know I suppose you hear of you know MSF working abroad what's what's it like being part of that sort of mission I mean it must be hard it must be rewarding I imagine Ch- personally challenging I, I you know yeah all of the above I think um and I think you know it very much depends on the mission it very depends on it very much depends on who you're there with mm. um and how long you're there for and what your skill set is I think so like mm. if you're you know if you are in a project where, where you can see there is definite benefit that's probably probably topical as well so you can really relate to it as well with people that you like and you can collaborate with really well and in your skill set then it's absolutely exhilarating um Mm. and you really feel like you know every day you feel like this is where I'm meant to be today like and and that's a really special thing in life I think like there's very few times where you can be like you're walking down the street and be like this is where I'm meant to be right now Um, and actually walking around the hospital sometimes particularly in South Sudan on the last one where things came together I was like this is this is where I'm meant to be today like and 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 that's that's a really blissful thing I think in some ways so a sense of um, like you're, I mean, I don't want to sound like, like you're, you're, you know, I suppose it must feel like, you know, all the training you've been through and sort of it's worth, it feels worthwhile. Is that, I mean, I, I'm sort of trying to grasp, you know, the true, what, why you, you know, go to another country and, you know, put yeah. yourself through. Yeah, it feels, so it definitely, so it feels worthwhile. Um, and it feels worthwhile depending on the project so I mean you know there are going to be ones which are very very difficult and that don't feel worthwhile at all and you think mm-hmm. god I should, I'm, I'm not I'm not being beneficial here mm-hmm. this is taking a huge personal toll on me mm-hmm. I'm in a strange location with no family I get to speak to you know my home 10 minutes a day and I have to use a loo that's a massive hole in the ground um, mm-hmm. so you know so there are there are moments like that but if you're if you're in a project where things come together mm-hmm. um, then, then then yes it feels worthwhile in that even if you're looking numerically like you know we're, we love data right like say so you're seeing more patients than, than you're able to here you're seeing patients with greater needs who come in sicker who turn around quicker most mm, of the time and mm. um, you're dealing with families who don't normally get that time spent with them and aren't used to having the infrastructure to get that level of care mm. um, and at the same time you are collaborating with a number of normally very 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 locally experienced or locally enthusiastic doctors nurses healthcare professionals yeah. from the lo- location and just sharing skills so you're gaining a lot of skills from them but you're also you know imparting a lot of skills from us so there's this huge yes. number of endorphin things going off there and that's the yeah, selfish yeah. bit because you think yeah, well yeah. i should be here to have sort of an endorphin release yeah, yeah, yeah. and yes there are real tough bits but mm. you know you, there, there are there are undoubted endorphin pathways going on in that and then what's it like coming back after something like that? i mean you said you recently sort of semi-recently come back from a mission what's it like sort of readjusting yeah it's interesting it's kind of a, 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 a sort of a, a, a kind of a dichotomy between sort of being just really relieved really happy to see loved ones obviously mm. um and you know access a little bit of normality again mm. um versus thinking that we live in an ov- overwhelmingly complex society and you know mm. even if you just say that you know walk into sainsbury's on white ladies road in bristol and there's like 26 types of butter it's yeah. like 
I don't know which one am I meant to pick and why. Yeah. And, you know, inevitably I have no brand loyalty and just go for the tubes. But, um, but you know, but it's, it's, those kind of, it's those kind of questions um, which, I, which, which I find difficult. Mm. Um, and then getting back into medicine, obviously it's a privilege to be able to provide the level of care that we do in the UK and particularly here at Bristol Children's. Um, but there's obviously going to be a lot of conflict there in your mind that we're not able to give that that, mm. that standard elsewhere and sometimes it feels like we overcomplicate things which sometimes doesn't give the best service to, 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 to children mm. I came back to pick you one of the one of the times I came back from Niger and, and it's obviously a very different environment and then here you know practicing relatively defensive medicine some of the time and ordering mm. a lot of tests is probably a good thing for the system and for the for the children overall but it's difficult to it's difficult to assimilate with them with what you do yeah around. yeah yeah so you- do you take things back from that you've learnt on missions to your patient care now in the UK? Definitely, definitely, and it's definitely a two-way street. And just for just for anyone who's who's going to listen to this and, and wants to organise like an UP or an out program experience to, to do global health or whatever, like one of the biggest actual selling points is that you do come back with with a huge number of skills which mm. which you maybe don't get in the in the UK. Um, and I think one of the one of the really positive things about practicing any any medicine is the diversity within it so like you know whether that's diversity just of your consultant body in a, in, a, in a department and you pick up different things from different people mm. if you cast your net relatively wide you're going to get loads of different skills um, I think some of the main things that I came back with were definitely a bit of a pragmatism um, of what's really important here like what is the life or death bit in this what has to be done what's optional and what's a little bit frivolous mm. and so I come back with a different kind of idea of that definitely know what a sick child looks like um, and definitely know what a sick child doesn't look like mm-hmm. um, and so that allows me I think to be a lot calmer um, yeah. in, in resource scenarios and to know the limits of, of medicine and the limits of physiology you know to yeah, cope with yeah. um, and also just used to sorting stuff out yourself a lot more so you know thinking actually if we don't have quite as many people as we would do to a trauma call and we don't have 42 people to it we'll probably be okay like you know we'll probably we can we, you know we, there is a lot of resilience in all of us mm-hmm. that we can call on and sometimes you need to find that in other contexts, I think. Mm. Pretty interesting. I I wonder if you can sort of briefly describe what a mission is like from from the start to finish, either perhaps from a sort of a more outsider sort of overarching point of view, but also, you know, I, I assume, I don't know, do you sort of pick times that you go? Do you just get an email or a phone call and they say, you know, what, what what's, you know, how does it work, work it, you know, sort of from start to finish? Yeah, so it's it's um it's a slight. It's, I think again, it changes each time. But so it, it's very much reliant on your availability. So you, it, the kind of onus is on you to say, I'm going to be available between these dates, and then you speak to your coordinator in in London or in in, in one of the sections. So there's five sections of MSF. None of them are in London, so they're all European based. Mm. And then the the London office can place you with one of those sections. Sure. Um, and so through those pathways, you say, right, I'm available for, ideally nine months for your first mission. Yeah. ideally six months for subsequent missions but many of mine have been two months or three months mm. um so just to you know wherever the need is um and then they will they will match you with that and so they send you a um uh, you know they send you a couple of proposals um and they might say right well we really need a pediatrician here or we need someone with pediatrician and adults here but it's this kind of project do you think you'd be you know would that suit you and stuff mm. um and they very much say that you know if you decline one it has absolutely no bearing on whether they'll offer you another one they're trying to find the right fix for you mm. um and so then you know you end up sort of talking it through and maybe trying to get a bit of information from the field and they send you some information documents and then you decide 
yeah, yes, this is for me, or actually, no, I'm not sure that this would be a good fit for, for, for my skill set and my personality even. Mm. Um, and then you, if you do take it, then you, you get um, given like a lot, of, um, a lot of other paperwork that you kind of read through just to get contextualised. Mm. Normally you'll have a briefing before you go, so they'll like, so the advisor in Geneva or wherever will either ring you up or see you in person and just talk you through the context. Um, and then obviously they sort out all of your logistics for you. And that's, again, a bit of a selfish thing for me. It's got I quite like being sent some plane tickets and just told where to go at what time and I'll be yeah. there. Um, so then, so one, so one mission just to talk through, I guess, is, mm-hmm. uh, so the one, just because it's the most recent, the one in South Sudan. Um, I went there for three and a half, four months. Um, and so you kind of, you get your tickets, you fly out normally to a capital city. So went out to um, Juba. And then there's normally headquarters of MSF there where they do the logistics and they, you know, all the, the, the head guys are there in country. Mm. You spend a few days there having briefings and then you go out to the field, like wherever you are. So because of the rainy season, we kind of had to fly out on, on these um, UNHCR um, planes out, like little propeller planes out to the mm. to the field. And we landed on this um, runway strip in, so I was in a GOC um, project, which is just on the border between Sudan and South Sudan. So it's not claimed by either, really. And so it's a bit a little bit of a no man's land in this box mm. um, that's politically contentious. Um, and this this runway strip was was really famous because it's just there were just herds of goats and 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 cattle and people living pretty much on the runway strip. So there's these two guys in fluorescent jackets who have to run out before a plane comes down and quickly shoo off all the goats. And then as soon as they turn their back, the goats come back round by a different way and come back on the end of the thing and you know just yeah. end up missing a plane. Um, so yeah, it's very rural, very um, very isolated. Um, and then yeah, you come into the project, and you know you you normally get a bit of orientation the first day and stuff. Um, and the accommodation for me in in, in um, South Sudan was actually really really nice. So we lived in Tukul's, which are the kind of um, traditional South Sudanese um, huts, if want of a better word, with a kind of for for us with a brick kind of um, brick walls and then kind of straw roofs. Mm. Um, but you know, I, I went. On my elective, I went to Zanzibar just after um, I was in I was in Tanzania for mm. some diving and some you know pristine beaches to do my F one applications, um, and it was very similar to the place that I stayed in there in this beautiful holiday you know resort. So it actually looked looked beautiful and people cared about it and you know made a little garden around it and you know, made some like like everyone done little murals on the walls for people who'd been there before and mm. the one that stood out was like MSF never 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 give up um it was just like quite like you walk past that and you're like oh this is cool like quite yeah. a lot of people have been in before you can see the background and um, and then yeah so then you know you end up sort of meeting the team over the next few days and then just kind of getting stuck into the work um i think the big thing is that you should absolutely um not get sort of too stuck in and lose sight of the wood for the trees kind of thing in those in those first few probably three to four weeks if anything mm. so you kind of like really have a really open mind throughout that time you don't pass judgment on anything you don't try to change anything you do the someone likened it to the chicken thing for me where you know you, you when you see a chicken and it's kind of standing on one leg mm-hmm. it's got one leg in the air and it's kind of thinking about where to take its next step and it's like looking a bit like confused like where it's going to take its next step and you kind of do that for a while yeah. um so basically this project particularly was um about 170 beds in total which is probably a medium to large size project i guess the project i've been in before was 800 pediatric beds which wow. was crazy um was it was a malnutrition center um but right. again only msf can put that together in those kind of places which is yeah. uh, i think really amazing um but this one's about 170 beds probably about 100 to 120 pediatric medical beds and yeah. um, had a surgical capacity as well so a surgical ward for adults and children had a maternity ward and then had an adult ward as well 
then also has um, outpatient TB services, non-communicable diseases um, services like diabetes and heart failure mm-hmm. kind of clinics, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a big TB outreach into the community where they take basically free food to, to TB patients around the local box. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a really massive offering in a really diverse range of, you know, range of medical and, and humanitarian issues mm-hmm. all centered on this, on this, on this, you know, this, this little rural kind of area in, in South yeah. Sudan. Um, and so day to day would be you, mainly medical for me as a, as a paediatrician. So um, you start with a handover meeting in the morning where all the doctors would come together. It'd be a chance for everyone to talk about the patients from overnight and they'd hand over a 12 bed HDU. Um, and then people would always raise concerns. So they'd always call it concerns. And um, you know, they're basically a way to talk about improving the service, I guess. Someone would be like, oh, I have a concern. Be like, oh, OK, concern. Yeah, that sounds to me that's something that's actually genuinely concerning. Yeah. Whereas be like... I think that um, that the fluid the fluid we give in HGU could be um, could be this instead of this. It's like that's a really good idea. Let's do that. And then yeah. the next one will be like, I have two concerns. Oh. And, then, <laughs> and then like you get around the table and someone will be like, I have sixteen concerns. Uh, but yeah, it was a really nice way for people to talk about how to improve the yeah. project. We went and then we normally did a um, uh, an HGU ward round with the local doctor and about three of the local nurses. So twelve patients are the sickest patients, and we're talking mainly mainly malaria actually in that time. So lots of countries in South Southern Africa as you as you probably aware have a peak where the the food is at its most minimum. So like mm-hmm. you've kind of been through the rainy season and then you get um the, the crops are not haven't been harvested yet and aren't ready so you've run out of food uh, it's exactly the same time because it is the rainy season that you get all the mosquitoes so then mm. you get a horrendous malaria peak at the same time as a malnutrition peak mm. um, and it's also the time when you get a meningitis belt as well so you you know you have huge swings in the um in in the in in the need I guess mm. um, and so this was this was one of those times um, and so lots and lots of children with cerebral malaria lots having convulsions for 24 48 hours even before getting to us you know and walking mm. for those 24 48 hours to get to us um, and then needing a lot of support and a lot of care and a lot of attention um, mm. in that HDU we see that we then go to the neonatal unit so there's about 20 beds on the neonatal unit we try to skip around those quite quickly and just concentrate on the really sick ones um, you then normally get a bit of lunch and then in the afternoon you go around the inpatient paediatric beds. So that was maybe 50 or 60 on an average day, something like that. It is, but so the, the, the local, so the national staff had, had normally done a ward around in the morning. And so mm-hmm. you just go bed to bed and just sort of have a little look at their observations and have a little look at their, the, the ward around and just see if, A, it kind of tallied with the guidelines, sort of the MSF guidelines, which are very clear and you know should be adhered to i guess um and b just if they had anything to discuss and then you know you, you do see a few patients together mm. in, in a more long-winded way and then and then every patient very quickly yeah and um, and all the time you'd have sort of a radio on where you get called to deliveries or you get called to emergencies and we'd have a cardiac arrest probably once every couple of days um and um and then you know a lot of very sick malnutrition patients and stuff in the meantime mm. um so that was kind of the daily thing and then you'd normally be finished by about five or six something like that um, and then you'd stay on call with the radio and the, the, the compound was very much on the same uh, you know on the same setting as the hospital so you could just run in any time yeah. um, and so you know you, you quite often get called maybe one in two or one in three nights you get a call to go in and stuff so not not horrendous but you know definitely kept you kept you on your toes mm, yeah. Um, but yeah it was I mean for me that was that was one of the most functional projects that I've been in um, just because it had everything it had the good paediatric well apart from me but you know like good paediatric expertise from the national staff 
two paediatricians, one senior, one junior expat, um, had a really good um, surgical setup and a maternity setup and that outpatient setup, mm. um, and had been there for about 10 years or something. So lots of people right. think MSF just go in and then get out again, but there are lots of projects that are going in for a long time. Yeah. So it felt really well established. It felt like there was a real system, and it felt like the offering we were giving was actually a really strong, positive functional offering for the people of mm. the Abbey mm. region and so that, that felt something you could be proud of yeah yeah and are you do you feel like you're working outside your comfort zone I mean I suppose both in because you're obviously an, an emergency pediatric doctor here in, in the UK you know you're doing sort of general I know you obviously train generally but you know how, how far do you feel out outside your comfort zone and different conditions, like you're saying, cerebral malaria, you would never see that here. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, I think it depends how you look at it. So like, I, I, and I only came to, came to realise this kind of on this mission. And that's why this mission felt a lot more comfortable and more, more positive for me in some mm-hmm. ways, because it takes me a few missions to realise how to kind of go about things in some ways. And, you know, I'm still learning a huge amount every time. And I still don't have, a, you know, I'm still nowhere near being as effective as, as, as many people. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you still try. Um, but I think, I think if you go in thinking... I have to know everything. Like I am the expat, and I therefore must have all the knowledge. And you know, I, everything rests on me. That is absolute hiding to nothing. Because a, you're not respecting the the huge amount of skill and expertise that people have all over the world, and, and particularly you know in, in the national staff in, in in the projects that I've worked in. You know, cerebral malaria to me is like whoa. Okay, I can deal with seizures, and I can deal with sort of fluid balance, and I can deal with the the, the infections that come alongside it. But I don't know where the you know, I walk into the room of cerebral malaria and I don't know where the walls are, I don't know where the ceiling is, I don't know where the doors are and stuff. But those guys there have seen tens of thousands of patients like that. So as long as you as long as you're not there to try to know everything, you're there to try to support other colleagues to use their expertise to provide a bit of your own expertise. Mm. But critically I find that it's the practicalities. So if you think, well look, we're gonna be in a lot of holes here but we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of them because A, we're going to be able to find people who have dug themselves out before and we're going to be able to ask them how to do it. And B, we'll put our, put our heads together and we'll figure out a way out. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, I think it really felt like this time having that open sort of mind to it really made a big difference mm-hmm. to how out of my depth I felt because I never felt I never felt like this is all up to me. If I can't figure this out, this child's going to die. It's yeah. like we're going to give the best chance we can. We're yeah. going to use all of the local expertise. We're going to use any expertise I can give. And then we're going to put it on telemedicine where you can get world experts who are on an MSF platform wow. um, to give you advice on specific cases. So it's not actually that difficult to feel like you're giving a good service wow. to, to children in that context, yeah. I think. And as long as you don't think that you have to do everything and that you're the main source of paediatric expertise, because mm. you never will be. I suppose, you know, if, if at a very superficial level, if you think about it, you sort of feel like, you know... You're a doctor, a white doctor from the UK, goes over, thinks they know that they can treat these for help, you know, do you know what I mean? There's a superficial level, it can feel slightly wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's a big, that's a big criticism of, of what MSF do and of what NGOs in general do. Um, and I think the way that I look at that are to think that every team, every team that we work with is best when it's diverse. And I think, I think we all really value the, the huge spread of nationalities that we have working in the NHS and we feel enriched for that and we feel that we offer a better service because we have different expertise from different places. Yeah. And so it feels to say, well, actually, that diversity, it, 
it doesn't apply to South Sudan. So actually, you know, how many how many people are there from across the world working in South Sudan? Like we've got it quite, you know, there aren't those opportunities there. Mm. So actually, if you're going there, ideally with an open mind to say, can I be useful? And mm. can I can I bring some of the things that we do here? So like governance, for example, just practicalities, patient flow, um, mm. simple pediatric care for those who maybe haven't had the opportunities to study pediatrics or do postgraduate qualifications in pediatrics, mm. then can I not be a useful part of a, of a multidisciplinary and, and, and diverse team there? And, and why, why is that a bad thing? Mm. Um, so so I, I, feel that, I feel that when teams work together, then they can be really positive and really strong. Um, but yes, if you go there with a very unrealistic expectation, both of your own ability, the reasons why you're going, and the abilities and qualities of the people, you know, the local, the national staff who you work with, then yes, it's, it is a it's a very difficult thing and potentially a very dangerous mm. thing to do. And so, yeah, you have to get that right. And I'm, I, I don't know if I have. I think I'm getting better. Mm. I think I think mm. this mission felt a much better skill balance and mix to me. And I felt we had a more effective team because of it. But you know, we we always learn. And I suppose um, the the difference with you is you. You're a paediatrician, so you have you have that skills to, to give. Whereas I think you know, perhaps in other situations that might not be the case. But you, you know, you're a professional, you know, paediatrician. So you're you're going there to give a, a skill rather than just thinking they'll sort of change the entire system or, or things like that. Yeah. Um, so what sort of level do did you start um, working for MSF as a I assume as a as a reg sort of level? Yeah, so it was post ST five when I did my first um, uh, when I did my first mission with MSF, and I'd done six months post ST three with the Royal College of Pediatrics in Myanmar, which was a really really valuable kind of it was more quality improvement and capacity building, which was great, um, and they they run a really good program, and and it, which is very sustainable, I think. Um, and so that really kind of did ground me, but I was really glad actually that I had the SD four and five to get used to running a hospital yeah. by myself, not by myself, but being a key no, I mean, being a key person who runs a pediatric department overnight yeah. when consultants aren't there, kind of thing. Um, and that definitely put me in good stead for taking more responsibility. Mm. And I think one of the key things with yeah, you know, we can say that it's all extremely collaborative, and it is, and you must recognise the skills and recognise your lack of skills mm. and the fact that you are a drop in in the ocean, like in this kind of thing. Um, but equally some of the systems I find that you work in are actually inherently relatively hierarchical as well mm. and respect more senior staff mm. and so particularly in Iraq you know you'd have 12 doctors for example who had enormous capacity and enormous knowledge but if they didn't know something they'd come to you as their kind of in brackets supervisor as like and so if you're an F you know if you're an F2 or you're an ST2 or whatever then you're going to have to be very you're going to have to be very flexible and agile in how you use that to find the skill so it's probably not going to come from you it's going to you're going to be the facilitator yeah to, to find those skills yeah. and whereas when you're a little bit more senior maybe you can bring a little bit more to the party and say well actually i think this is probably what we need like you know mm. how can we how can we tackle this mm. and, and you have a bit more direction and i think if you lose that respect and that sort of that expectation mm. that you maybe have some extra skills then that that's quite a difficult working relationship then as well. Mm. So I, I was glad that I waited until ST after ST five, and obviously that's a little bit long in pediatrics because we only start pediatrics after F two, you know. So mm. and you do four weeks or eight weeks in medical school, so you know you're in an adult specialty. Clearly, you're a lot more senior, a lot quicker, mm. and you're regging ST three, and you're sort of running whole A and E departments by yourself. So it's whenever people feel comfortable with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. I would just say that on the on the sort of the white savior thing as well. It's like I think that I think it's I think it's such an important thing to avoid. You know, and, and we know that, and we and we know that it it can be that there are some cringeworthy things that are done in the name of trying to be useful. Um, but the alternative of doing very little or not sort of not sort of trying to wherever you are comfortable in global health feels to me a little bit more cringeworthy the, the sort of thing of oh no I'm just I, I actually no no I know there's a huge need there I know that um, you know how many thousands of children are, are dying of preventable causes mm. um, but actually I, I don't I don't want part of that uh, yeah yeah it's, it's fine and because everyone has different skills in different areas but if it's because you don't want to be a white savior then I think that that doesn't make sense to me yeah I didn't it must be difficult because people must challenge you on that sometimes. I don't know, maybe not, maybe not as frequently. Um, no, occasionally. And it does, it does, it does feel like it, you sometimes get made to feel like you are doing something really, really wrong. And then you sort of look back and you think, I'm not sure. And, I, and this may sound really arrogant or whatever, but I'm not sure most of the children who came through that department and saw the team that I was a part of mm. felt that what was going on there was wrong. And you know the the, the 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 hospital, for example, that they worked in in Niger, they had twenty thousand children come a year um, to there, and eighteen thousand survived. And I can guarantee you, all of those would have died um, had it not been for that MSF facility there, because there is no other infrastructure, there is no one else, and there is no infrastructure to get people to any other to any other facility. So if you ask those eighteen thousand families, is this the wrong? Is this wrong? I, I don't know. I, I doubt that they'd say no, and and that's who we're that's who we're all there for. Like whether you're national, or whether you're international, or whether whatever you do, if you if you can try to do it sensitively, and again, I'm still learning that, then then it feels like a, something that is the same as trying to be useful in the UK, mm. but just in a different context and with different pressures and outcomes. Um, you know, global health is it, it is a jungle. Like you know, it is it is multifactorial. It is challenges everywhere you look and if anyone had the answer they'd have done it by now um you know what i mean so we are evolving mm-hmm. um and as part of that you need short-term and you need long-term goals and so someone still has to do emergency response and, and short-term goals because otherwise how do you justify that to the people on the ground who are in need of that care so that still has to be done um so you know it is a, it is a whole process that we're all going through and trying to figure out our way i didn't mean to challenge you i hope that was okay because no, yeah. no, no. i think it's i mean well, no, I, I mean, i'm still yeah. i'm still working through this right like and i think i think everyone is and i think like everyone yeah. who has ever thought about global health whether they want to do it or whether they don't want to do it has to has to grapple with with a lot of ethical dilemmas yeah um and and for me actually when you're actually there in person it doesn't feel like and, and you're working in a, in a diverse team it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like that and if it does, yeah. then something's gone wrong, and, yeah. and you either you've lost the insight, or you've gone to the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, or, or yeah. some, something else is not right, and it's it's not going to be a constructive relationship. And I suppose that's the benefit of going with an organisation like MSF, where they, you know, as you say, they put you in the right place at the right time, and you as the right person. Yeah, and that's yeah. and that's the goal, and that's the goal. And I think MSF is is acutely aware of the expat sort of gung-ho sort of you know mm-hmm. issue and there's there's a big push within msf to to 
ensure that the managerial structure in, in country, so the senior structure, um, is, um, is taken up by national staff yeah. um, and at the very least continental staff who know a hell of a lot more about what's going on than, than, than any expat could. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really, really important thing. Um, but equally, I still think that's got to be within a diverse framework where you can contribute skills from all over the world. And, yeah. and so yeah, yeah. MSF is changing and it's very aware of, of some of the uh, some of the challenges particularly with that with that previous model mm-hmm. uh, and I think I think it is changing in a positive way for yeah. yeah yeah you know there are days where you come back from hospital and you feel like you've done absolutely nothing and you know the you are seeing children deteriorate in front of you and there is very little you can do about it and that's because it is it is such a multifactorial thing, right? It's mm. not. It's not. It's not you there at that moment. It's. It's. It's the forty oh. years that have led up to, you know, healthcare need being there and the lack of infrastructure that's there, the difficult governmental support in a lot of places, and you know the whole kind of thing, and um, and you're a little bit of a pawn in that. And so I think, um, yeah, there are days where children pass away where you think, this would never have happened anywhere else or multiple other places in the world. Um, and that happened a lot, particularly in Niger. And they were dying of malnutrition, and their their skin was falling off because they just didn't have, you know, the the protein to adhere their skin to their body. Um, and many were passing away, like multiple a day. Um, and you know, that's that's pretty tough to conceptualise. Like I think that's pretty tough to to go home and think, you know, we don't have enough, and I'm not. This isn't my bag. Like this isn't my expertise. Like I'm not useful here. Yeah. Um, and that's really it's tough. too late, almost you're too late and it's you know and yeah what is the point in in, in me being here whereas actually you know, it's the doctors on the ground who have been doing this for years who who know what these children need and and we don't have it um but then I, I, the way that i the way that i try to conceptualize that is just bigger picture it's like that project is again i think really only MS, msf could put that project in place and run mm-hmm. it and sustain it um and it is 800 beds in the peak and it is you, you know as we said Twenty thousand children coming, eighteen thousand surviving, and although you're seeing multiple die a day, those eighteen thousand, because of the work of all of the national staff, like the national, um, the the feeding assistants, you know, the cleaners, the everyone who's pulling together, mm-hmm. all with a common goal, there it is that that sends tingles down the back of your neck a little bit, and so in the tough moments, you can you can Why zoom out a little bit, yeah. I mean, even just the thought of, you know, a pediatric cardiac arrest being that regular. I mean. I can't. I, I don't know the figures of how how often that happens at, at an average children's hospital, but it can't. You can't. There can't be many. Yeah. I mean, and so to have that. I mean, a, in the last two and a half years here, I've dealt with probably three or four, maybe, um, just on my shifts. You know. Yeah. Um, and then in South Sudan, I would have dealt with. Yeah, you, know, you would have seen um, dozens, um, definitely in in a four month period. So yeah, dozens, um, and then in Niger you know more more a dozen like a dozen a week at least if, if not more um and then you know but that is a failure of the whole system right like that is not if they if children come to you in arrest there's very little chance that you're going to get them back to a neurological baseline which is positive and which isn't going to cause a very difficult situation for the whole family and possibly community so it is difficult I guess I guess the last thing about that is that you see you see a lot of cases which you think and, and one of the positives are, and you know you have to take the positives right and you have to you focus on the positive cases yeah and um, you know I mean I could fill I could fill a lot of time with just talking about very inspiring families and very inspiring children um, but there there are times where you know you see someone who's been having a yeah a fit for forty eight hours for example and and they're in a coma like their GCS is three 
and you're like you know yeah, this is going to be difficult and you have some mm. difficult difficult conversations through a translator and you you know you get the community guys together and you know you, you try to you try to allow them to access the support that they need in their community in their language and you know and everything um but you think you know your mind is thinking this would be a terrible outcome in the uk so i don't know what's going to happen here and then they just surprise you and you know mm-hmm. like 12 days later one in particular came out of you know gcs improved uh, and then another 12 days after that they were walking and wow. another 12 days after that they were home and coming back with sweets for us uh you know with mild neurological yeah. compromise um but the fortitude of children and families across yeah. the world is 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 jaw-dropping sometimes it's and it goes back to what you said about sort of knowing the limits of of you know knowing the physiology physiological limits of of a child i mean to have to be that unwell and then to have yeah. a good outcome it just pushes the boundaries it's like you just don't think that people can survive this and yeah and you don't think that people can survive the trauma that they go through and the, the sadness that they go the through families. And stuff. yeah yeah but they do and they then you know it's just it's it's very it's very it's a cliched word to say humbling isn't it but it is um it is very you are allowed to say it <laughs> i could talk to you i literally i could talk to you all day i i know there's a few questions that um that people will probably want me to ask and that's just practical advice for for perhaps going to sort of global health or applications for msf for medical students for foundation doctors what sort of things would you recommend yeah so i guess it's um I guess there's there's not that much that very very specifically I think that and one of the things that I quite often say is that if you're thinking about global if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking oh I mean I'm interested in global health that's the first step that's the spark like you know that you've had the spark at some point mm. and actually having it in the back of your mind is actually just the most useful thing you can do I think so you don't have to be going out and being like oh, I'm gonna do all this stuff and mm. I'm gonna say the you know it's just having the the thought at the back of your mind that at some point. I'd quite like to get, I wouldn't mind investigating this possibility. And I'm going to think about some of the ethical issues. I'm going to think about where the best way to, to, to spend my time and contribute as best I can is. Yeah. And, and if you're having those discussions in your own head or with other people, that's the, that's the key. And if you're doing that, then all sorts of opportunities will come your way. So whether that's getting involved in helping with or going on global health courses or helping with some global health teaching or being involved in guideline writing, um, which will be used in an international context mm. or whether it's experience whether it's travel just pure traveling like as in backpacking around wherever and getting experience of different cultures and um, all of those things are come from an in, being inquisitive and having at the back of your mind that this is something i'd like to explore in the future yeah. and 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 you will very much see opportunities just come out of the woodwork for that just having it at the back of your mind just ticking over and some of those specific ones might be your elective. And so that's uh, your elective is a good time, hopefully post-COVID, to, um, to, to yeah. be able to explore a different healthcare setting um, and try to find out some of the realities of it. Um, if there are well-run and positive short-term NGO missions which you can go on as a, as a medical student, I'd caution against anything that asks you to pay a significant amount of money because they're quite often not the not necessarily the the most positive um for the beneficiaries um but um but if you can find something that fits with your model then great you know short bits of experience is fantastic um getting in touch with anyone who who is involved in global health um you know and uh, and speaking to people who have gone out and done it and, and getting some advice 
And then specifically from MSF, um, MSF feels like it's probably a second stop or a third stop in a global health career because of the reasons we've talked about. Mm. Um, and quite often it, you're ideally meant to do the diploma in tropical medicine before before you do it and have three years in specialty before you work with MSF in a field position. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, there's lots you can be involved in. So there's a number of um, campaigns. So like there's a big affordable drugs campaign, um, which has been going on for years, which is a really positive kind of way to contribute and get involved in that and raise publicity and raise awareness. Um, you can uh, um, arrange fundraising events, for example. Like we did a um, did a number of mock exams in, in London, in West London, for medical students in paediatrics, Nobles and Guyani, and raised about £12,000 for MSF through that. And lots of people were really enthusiastic about it. And, and you know, you can contribute in many different ways. Um, and whilst you're doing it for good reasons, it also will be good on your CV to say that you've been thinking about it and uh, and getting involved from a medical medical school or f1 f2 sort mm. of perspective brilliant um thank you very much for joining us on the geeky medics podcast it's been a pleasure having you and I, I honestly could talk to you for for hours hours more but um i know you're busy and i also know you're working this evening on twilight shift so thank you very much for coming into work slightly early and talking to me oh it's been a pleasure having you on no worries thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it and uh, great work on the podcasts in general <laughs> That was such an interesting conversation and thank you to uh, Dr. Mally for, for being such a good guest. If you enjoyed what you listened to today and you want to hear more from us, then please subscribe. Geeky Medics has loads to offer and we've just released a collection of over 300 OSCE stations, providing everything you need to practice OSCEs, including patient scripts, examiner checklists and performance insights. You can learn more at geekymedics.com forward slash OSCE stations. As always, thanks to the producers of the podcast, Emma Harvey and Lewis Potter. Thank you.